Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. I'm Monica, and I'm your host. My normal handle on the blogs is Massive Attack. Safe Recovery was created initially to address predatory behavior in 12-step meetings, but soon it quickly grew to do more than that. Um, We want to discuss any problem that might be going on in the rooms or in the culture. We want to say empowerment not powerlessness, powerlessness is our slogan, and where we will discuss and explore alternatives to AA and want to support men and women who have written new thought books on recovery from any addiction, any alternative healing, both spiritual and secular, so that we can create better selves and have better lives so we can live happy and sober. I have a very, very special guest with us tonight. Um, her name is Keeper of the Birds. She's a mother of four. She's in recovery for over 23 years. I think she just had a birthday. She's currently living in Southern California and comes to me through the Make AA Safer workshop is really how I found her in that we had the workshops last April in Culver City. The second one was done in West Covina. And through uh, somebody posted something on Facebook from that second one where there was a rape that came out of that. And there I saw uh, Keeper wrote what had happened to her son. And so without any further ado, we are going to bring Keeper on to talk. Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio. This is Monica. Hi, Monica. I'm Keeper. Hi, Keeper. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. A little bit nervous, but good. Okay, good. You don't need to be nervous. We won't bite you here, right? This is good. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned the best fact. <laughs> yeah. So, Keeper, Keeper, it's an unusual name. Um, yes. Um, Tell me about your name, how you came to have your name. Um, I am part Cherokee and part Irish, and so I grew up in a very Catholic Irish home, but had uh, strong roots in the Cherokee community. And um, through the death of my son, there came a point in my recovery where I decided that I would legally take my native name and denounce my other name. Um, mm-hmm. So when I did, uh, I my native name is Zente- Zentage Owana, which translates to Keeper of the Birds. Mm. Beautiful name. So... Uh, I know a lot of the story, um, a lot of our listeners don't, but um, this is really a tragic story, and I really uh, commend you on, you know, kind of going in there still into the rooms, um, you know, trying to raise awareness, but I'd like to have you tell the story. So uh, 
you are in recovery for 23 years, right? You just celebrated a birthday? Yes, beginning of this month. April 1st, I celebrated yeah. 23 years. So how did it wind up that uh, your son, uh, I guess, went with you to a meeting? You want to tell the story? Um, I had about six years in recovery myself, and my son um, was 13 at the time and um, decided he needed to go live with his father, who was still at the time uh, a practicing active alcoholic. And I let him go live with him, and he came back in six months in an alcohol delusion himself. And so um, because my son also had other issues uh I took him to get counseling, mm-hmm. and uh, there came a Sunday morning shortly after he returned home to live with me that uh, usually on Sunday mornings I went to a spiritual uh, meeting that we had in Moorhead City, and my son asked on this particular morning to attend with me. And right. so, you know, I thought it would probably be a good thing because, uh, you know, I had been living in in sobriety and in the AA rooms myself for six years by then, mm-hmm. and I had seen other young people come into the rooms and knew immediately that my son had a problem. The problem was he had to realize he had a problem. So I let him come to the meeting with me, and at this meeting, the speakers, it just so happened, did not show up that day. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this was a meeting that was geared towards the whole family. It was at 11 on Sundays, and so we had an Al-Anon an AA, and an Alateen, whenever available, come and speak on Sunday mornings, or mm-hmm. a combination of, you know, them. Um, right. And so when the three speakers didn't show up, they asked me if I would speak, and it was the first time in my own recovery that I said no. And the reason I said no was because my son was 13, and I didn't feel like I could share my own story as openly as I needed to, and this particular meeting was geared in particular with um, your spiritual impact and how that's impacting your recovery. And mm-hmm. so with that in mind, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable enough in my own recovery at that point, and I said no. Right. Yeah, well, I understand that. I have children, for, too. I wouldn't feel comfortable yet either. I think that's kind yeah, of young. You know, mm-hmm. you know, he's not old enough to hear this. And so, you know, I said no again. The man asked me again, and I said no. And the third time... You know, it was like two minutes before the meeting. He had gotten one other person to speak. And at that point, you know, I really believed that, you know, this was God of my own misunderstandings way of telling me, look, I want you to speak today. There's a reason. And so Mm -hmm. even though I was uncomfortable about it, I told him yes the third time. And me and another person shared our story and shared the differences of, you know, how our walk was on a spiritual level with our drinking and the difference that, you know, these 12 steps had made in our spiritual walk today. And at the end of this meeting, the only chip we ever offered out was the white chip, the surrender chip, and it didn't matter if it was you were coming up as an Al-Anon, an Alateen, or an AA member. We offered out the white chip. And so at the end of this meeting, my son came up and picked up his white chip, and he had just turned 13 years old. Hmm. And what happened next? What was the next thing that... You know, um, a lot went on in my life that year. I got diagnosed with cancer, and so I was fighting cancer. We had two house fires. I had gotten married. So we moved to the mountains of North Carolina to um, get family support from my husband's family. 
and mm-hmm. we moved to a small town called Franklin originally. And this is where my son met his last sponsor. And his name is Gerald Estes. And uh, he heard him at the library on a Saturday night and asked him to be a sponsor. And my son was about 14. It was about a month before his 15th birthday. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I was in recovery and had been in the area since we had relocated. And, you know, so I asked my own sponsor because she knew this man. She moved from, she lived in his, the same particular area that he didn't in Florida and had a lot of time herself. So, you know, I asked her if she knew of this man. And she told me at that time that she did but didn't feel that she could uh, share the information that she knew with me that the traditions protected his anonymity. And so um, I really couldn't get anything on him. And what I did know of him when I did see him in the rooms all seemed to be looking really good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, we both know the traditions don't mean that, you know. They really there You know, to... at that point in my own recovery, I didn't yeah. even know much about traditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was after this that I made it, um, you know, a point in my own recovery to learn more about the traditions and exactly what did they mean and, and yeah. exactly what am I responsible for. Right. Um, I think everybody knows that if any kind of crime goes on, right, that they should call the police and tell people that it isn't just because you're in AA or in a meeting or a 12-step group uh, that people oh, get to you- hide. Monica, and, um, especially if someone knew somebody was, was a criminal or a, a, a pedophile or a sex offender and such. But I'd like to okay. tell you that I used to believe that until all this occurred in my own recovery. And yeah. so, you know, my own sponsor who had many, many years, Sheila G., um, you know, she knew that this man was on the run on pedophile charges from their home oh. state of Florida and did not say anything to me when I questioned about his character, knowing that my 14-year-old son just asked this man to be his sponsor. Oh, my God. To me. And yeah, so I have to disagree, and that's why today I upset people in the rooms, but I will call people on it, and I can't stand there and, and keep my mouth shut. You know, please, if you're listening and you're in a recovery room, if it's something that you would call the neighbor on or happened in your yard you'd call the law on or happened with your own family member. If it's something you'd call the law on and you're sitting in a room seeing it go on, please don't think that it's the exception and you should turn the other cheek and just, you know, pray for them. No, you're not to pray for them. You're to call the law, then pray for them. You know, please, Mm -hmm. if you're going to call the law, call the law. Uh, I used to think that people did that in the recovery rooms, and, and today I know that's not true. But that's why I won't leave the recovery rooms. That's exactly why I won't. And why is that? Because somebody has to stand there and say, you know what, no, you can't get away with that because you're in this room hiding out. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, the men that murdered my son, they were targeting the recovery rooms, and they were targeting treatment centers. For their next victims, it's yeah, sad. Is, it's true. Yeah, it's horrible. Happening. So tell us, tell us how the next step happened uh, of him oh, meeting it, him. Um, met him. You were telling me earlier. Today, your son worked for. 
and asked to be a sponsor. And, you know, mm-hmm. about nine months later, he's asking to go, you know, spend the night. They were going to go on a camping trip or a fishing trip or they were going to go out of town to a recovery, you know, event of some sort. And so, you know, being a single parent at that time in my recovery, uh, I thought it was good to have male influence for my son. And, you know, I was letting my son go. And uh, nothing really seemed out of the ordinary in the beginning, you know. And then my son uh, had a relapse. And during his relapse, uh, he took one of his sisters drinking. And they went to a party. And um, the end result of that party was... They came home and didn't say anything to me, but both of them wanted to go to the meeting in the morning, and uh, I took them to a meeting, and then after that meeting, they confessed, and both of them got back into recovery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at that time, TJ seemed leery of his sponsor, and I was, you know, uh, trying to talk to him about, you know, maybe you should find another sponsor, but he still wasn't divulging anything, any information about why he went back out or what right. got on or a discord with his sponsor. Mm-hmm. And um, so he had gone home for the holidays to his dad's side of the family. And while he was there, you know, for the last two years, he had been taking care of another man in the recovery rooms who had emphysema. Mm-hmm. And this still passed away, who was also up from Florida. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when Bill passed away, he left his house and 12 acres of land to my son. Mm. And uh, Jerry and Bill's sponsor, who was also out of Florida, a lawyer out of Florida, mm-hmm. uh, was, was the executor of the estate. And so what happened when my son went to go visit his family and he heard that Bill had passed away was he went back out with one of his cousins and uh, he was caught in uh, Grandma's bathroom, passed out with a rig in his arm. Mm-hmm. And so they asked him to leave, and they called him a cab. And my son was so messed up that he held up a cab driver with a butter knife, which got him. Oh my five, God! Which got him five months in Cabell County Jail. Uh, he, he with just a butter knife. Cab ride, not for money, just for the cab ride. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, that started him back in recovery, and it was at this point that he started telling me that Jerry had been molesting him for years. And by the time he got out of jail and came back home, you know, the bank was harassing him for bank payments, and he was arguing with the bank about, what do you mean? You know, I remember the deed burning party a year ago on this place. You know, it was left to me free and clear. Well, it was at that point that we found out that Somebody had taken out a $700,000 loan against his house and property while he was sitting in jail. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, his sponsor had convinced him that in order to uh, finish the will, that TJ had to send his uh, Social Security card and driver's license to him so that the executor of the will could finish the dealings on the will and the property. Mm -hmm. So my son, being naive, didn't know any better and mailed them to his sponsor. And what he did with that was they went to the bank and they took out a loan against the house. Well, my son was trying to get all of this resolved. And um, how was how old was TJ then when that happened? By the time all of this comes around, he's 20, fixing to turn 21, and he's mm-hmm. finally, you know, confessing, you know, that this is what's been going on and this is why he keeps relapsing and he didn't know what to do because you know they were threatening to kill his family if he told anyone. And he was afraid of these people. And so 
Um, you know, it's like TJ will deal with this together, and you know, the holidays were coming again, and right. um, you know, it's Thanksgiving Day, and me and his sisters and him, we had a big Thanksgiving dinner, and I took him back to the treatment center in Asheville, mm-hmm. and um, he got out in January. And, you know, meanwhile, over the holidays, me and his sisters had gone up to his house and set up a Christmas tree and put presents under the tree and everything so that when he got out, you know, it would all be sitting there waiting on him and we were going to do Christmas things. Mm-hmm. But when he got out, uh, you know, he called the day that he was getting out and he told us that Jerry was coming to the treatment center to pick him up, which I was not real happy about because by then we knew that Jerry was somehow involved with the bank issues. And TJ had already... Um, started paperwork when he was in the treatment center to press charges against Jerry for a fraudulent bank loan. And so over the next few days, you know, I expected to hear from my son, and we don't hear from him. And so his birthday a couple of weeks later, January 27th, rolls around, and he doesn't come over like he's supposed to, and we still haven't heard from him. And every time we call the house, the phone gets hung up. And so, you know, by the 28th of January, when I still didn't hear from him, I knew something was wrong. And Mm -hmm. I started calling the sheriff's department and asking them to make a courtesy call Mm -hmm. on his house. And, um, you know, they never told me whether they did or they didn't. Uh, Every day I was calling. By Valentine's Day, you know, I was just sick. I was beside myself sick. I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, I bet. And I kind of almost by the end of the day was just numb with being overwhelmed with grief. And so the next few days, honestly, I really don't remember a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Just being really, really sad. And then on the morning of the 19th, you know, I remember going to a meeting and somebody showing me that, you know, somebody, you know, a Nashville newspaper at a morning meeting. And I remember reading the article And, uh, you know, nothing in that article that morning led me to believe anything about it being my son. Mm -hmm. Nothing. You know, 25, 30-ish man, you know. So, you know, in Asheville, that's the next county over, you know, an hour away. Uh, Nothing led me to believe that it was my son, you know. But I still felt horrible. Left the meeting, went home. My daughters were with me that day. Later that afternoon, the Asheville Police Department came to the house and knocked on the door, and they brought nine Polaroids of my son's nine tattoos to identify my son, uh, son's body by. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was just in shock for the next few days. I was just in shock. Yeah, and, sure you-, you know, making funeral arrangements and trying to figure out what happened and, you know, they had his death listed as unknown and were trying to tell me that it was drug-related and I knew it wasn't because he he was finally, you know, the last we had talked, he was finally relieved that, you know, he no longer had to stand under the shadow of what had been done to him, that he right. could talk about it and that he didn't have to hide behind it and that he didn't have to drink and ease over it. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. um, I just couldn't see him going from that to within two weeks using. I just couldn't see right, it. Right. just didn't believe it. And so, you know, I went to the funeral, and his sponsor was there, and um, a few of his friends were there, and they were acting weird. And, you know, I started asking questions around to find out what, what had gone on about the missing days. And 
everybody was afraid. Nobody wanted to talk. I mean, everybody was afraid, and I didn't get it. And mm-hmm. it was like until they knew something, but they were scared to death to say anything. Right, and, right. Oh, now, and you say the sponsor. That means that Gerald Estes was at the funeral? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Christopher Luntz was at the funeral. Gerald Estes and the third man involved was also at the funeral. Yes, they were all. they all came to the funeral. Oh, yes. And the man mm-hmm. had the audacity, I want you to know, for the next three years to follow me around, you know, um, 13 weeks after my son's death, you know. Yeah. Um, one of his sisters is suicidal. His oldest sister is in West Virginia with her husband and her family. She's very, very depressed. My mm-hmm. youngest daughter, she's just lost. And, and I'm devastated. I'm just devastated. And yet, you know... I have a knowing on an intuitive level. And, you know, it was one of the reasons I have to admit now, because it's one of the things that I don't like to admit, Monica, and it's one of the things I was nervous about this show, is, you know, one of the reasons why I drank is because I've had an intuitive knowing all my life, and Mm -hmm. I've tried to run from it. And Mm -hmm. so when I tell you that I had a knowing that his sponsor was involved in his death, I knew. I knew, but I couldn't prove it. Yeah, so next you know, 13 weeks, I was trying to figure out, and I couldn't get anybody to talk. And it's at this point that his sister that's suicidal gets in a car wreck. And um, she's hit head on up in the mountains mm-hmm, by a drunk mm-hmm. driver. And so the next three years are consumed with, um, you know, 31 surgeries and getting her walking again and getting her baby sister through school, through high school, and trying to keep my own sanity, and meanwhile investigating on my own because they literally closed my son's case before the autopsy report was out and before the toxicity report was done. Right. Okay. What did they say closed he it died? It's unknown. It's like still so unknown. Just closed it as unknown. Why? Um, nobody can tell me that. Well, maybe because of some of the other stuff, you know, as you, right. the story with the Wait, police in that county, come. right? I mean... Uh, oh, I'm just, meanwhile, on my own, trying yeah. to deal with giving two of my girls the will to live and getting them through a bunch of surgeries and getting one through high school That's and dealing with my own health issues and, meanwhile, investigating. And so, you know, at this point in my own recovery, I have been praying for particular shortcomings to be removed. Um, that I felt at 15 years of recovery I shouldn't, you know, I should be better at or I shouldn't have to be dealing with anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I come to learn through this particular experience is maybe if these shortcomings haven't been removed, it's because they're still useful. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the big book, the seven-step prayer says, you know, what will be removed is all those that stand in the way of our usefulness to the Creator and to our fellows. Doesn't say they're all going to be removed, and I never right. understood that until this. And because I had to, you know, I literally at this point in, in my recovery, uh, before my daughter's accident, had decided that I was going to legally take my native name and that I was going to go undercover, because I suspected that the sheriff's department was somehow also involved in all of this. And I couldn't prove any of that. It was just a knowing on an intuitive level. Mm-hmm. And, so, and was this in, what city was this? Is this Moorhead City or? No, this is in the mountains of North Carolina, Macon County. Okay. And oh, so I lived at this time in Jackson County, but my son was in Macon County. 
Okay. And what I did was I literally moved right next door and changed my name, which at that point was Veronica, and mm-hmm. took my native name and legally changed it to Keeper of the Birds. Right. And um, started just quietly going to, you know, I moved into the N.A. rooms because this man and the people that were working with him were coming to the meetings and sitting across the table and giving me, you know, um, I don't know, just really like bold. staring me yeah, down across really the bold. table, the recovery room, like mm-hmm. daring me to say anything or do anything. And so um, there came a day that I was sitting in a recovery room across from Gerald where he had once again found out where I was going to my meetings and followed me to that meeting and was sitting across the table. And I sat there the whole meeting thinking how I, how lovely I would, how good it would make me feel to put my hands around this man's throat and just choke the piss out of him the whole mm-hmm. meeting. But when I left that meeting... I went to my elders over in Cherokee and reported Sweat Lodge, and I prayed, and I admitted for the first time, you know, what was truly in my heart, that as a mother, uh, I wanted to kill this man. Mm-hmm. But as a person in recovery, I can have compassion. But that does not mean that we're not accountable. These steps have taught me I have to be accountable for the things that I did in my drinking days and even in my recovery today that I have to be accountable for my actions. And so, um, you know, I admitted my feelings and I took them into the sweat lodge and uh, I prayed and I changed how I prayed and I started praying for justice with mercy for this man. And, um, you know, um, it would be four years of me collecting stuff before the federal marshals would come knock on my door. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and that's to, you know, I know it's only a one-hour show, but um, there came no, a you night have You have time. June we have 34 more minutes. Yeah, good. So go ahead with Yeah. So when there came a night in June of '05, and it was a full moon, and, um, you know, I had been praying about this incident and collecting stuff, you know, newspaper articles and taping the morning Christian radio show where if you got a traffic ticket or got in a fight with your neighbor, it was on the Christian morning radio station, local radio station there in Franklin, and uh, had been taping them, um, collecting letters with, you know, jailhouse postmarks, and, you know, my bedroom became lovingly known as the dungeon because there was just boxes, cardboard boxes stacked everywhere Mm -hmm. of stuff that I was collecting on these people for four years. Wow. And so here I am, June 2005, after doing all that, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, a friend, Pete, knocks on the door, and, you know, by then I had jumped into the N.A. rooms because um, they weren't going in the N.A. rooms, and, you right. know, I had to take care of my own ism. You know, I needed my recovery in order to be able to do this. I had to stay real active and real close, but I also had to be real quiet about what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, other than my spiritual family over in Cherokee and a few members from my original home group in Franklin, um, you know, not many people knew what was going on with me, and I tried to keep a really low profile and, you know, really, to be honest, use old drinking ways. And so... um, I'm praying on this particular June, 
for Justice with Mercy, and Pete comes over, and he's having a night that he can't sleep, and so he's talking to me about some issues he's going through and asking me Mm -hmm. what I'm doing, and I'm explaining to him my Native beliefs and, you know, that I'm praying for justice, and what I'm doing is called making medicine to call forth that justice with mercy, and, um, you know, amazingly, you know, we had breakfast that morning, he's getting ready to go to work, and, um, thanking me for, you know, getting him through the night and him right. not having to use. And here's all these federal marshals. There's literally like six cars and 14 marshals, and they're busting in on my house because they're wanting to talk to me. Wow. Um, and about not only my son's case, but a 2003 pedophile case. And so um, I let two of the marshals in the house and sat them down and talked to them and you know, I had to admit to them that, you know, that I had been doing all this investigating on my own because of my own intuition and that other than that, I really had nothing to go on. But this right. is what I collected. And, you know, so when they explained to me why they were there and what they were looking for and what they were looking at, they already knew because they had pictures in their possession that this mm-hmm. man was my son. And so they collected all this evidence from me and let me know at that point that, you know, by what I had given them, that I had identified some of the boys because what they had been given, there was another Veronica that was in Macon County, and the big joke, you know, everybody would call my house, was that you in the newspaper? Because she was always in trouble, and off and Mm -hmm. on I sponsored her uh, when she did try to get in recovery. And so the, the ironic thing, or the God incident, if you will, is that, you know, here we are years later, in right. And um, when they came to the house, they had these 24 pictures that this woman uh, was in the treatment center and um, trying to get in recovery again herself. And Jerry was in there with her and knew her because she was a local local woman like myself. Right. And so he was bragging to her about murdering my son and showing her pictures. Oh well, before God. she left the treatment center, she stole those pictures from him walked out of the treatment center, walked across the street to the federal marshal's office, told what he, you know, told her and turned over the 24 pictures. Those pictures, I am told, are three of him raping dogs. The rest of him are either him murdering my son or raping other little local boys. Wow. So That's that horrible. Into my house. And so... Um, wow. Wow. It's a long, long journey since then even because... It was at this point that, you know, I went into helping them and still having to keep quiet, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know... What were the reasons that you still needed to keep quiet if they... Uh, did they get him yet? Is that why, why they didn't uh, have enough on him? Um, they did on him, but, you know, the more information they found on him, the more... Uh, pieces they were finding, the more they were finding out this was not a small deal, that this, it it, it ended up being a seven-state pedophile ring where they are targeting recovery rooms and treatment centers. And they're Can you say that again? Can you say that one more time? August. It's really horrible. And so what happened in 05 is yeah. uh, after they came to my house and I gave them this information, they finally have enough that they can start hauling people in and uh, they're trying to get these cases on America's Most Wanted. 
So when the federal marshal called me and said, look, we're trying to get it on America's Most Wanted. We think we're going to get it on. We're going to stop these guys because they're still all walking free in June of 05. Mm. And so, and they're still all doing their their thing. And so, and um, so, um, (laughs) this is really hard to talk about. So, I'm sorry. You know, here we are in 05, and they tell me, you know, they're trying to get it on America's Most Wanted. The next thing they tell me is that they're not going to be able to get it on America's Most Wanted for six more months. And so I'm really upset about this. And again, I go to Sweat Lodge and I pray with my brothers and sisters over in Cherokee. And and I tell them, you know, six more months, it's blowing my mind. Six more months, all I can think about is how many more families and how many more children are going to be affected before they die. And the people helping them are stopped. You know, how many more people or how many are going to, how many more are going to end up dead like my son? And so... Mm. um, I go and I pray and I come home and that's what's on my mind and I got online and my youngest daughter showed me how to get on America's Most Wanted and I emailed John Walsh and I faxed him a bunch of the documents, copies of documents that I just turned over to the federal marshals and I asked him, you know, how many more people, how many more people, how many more families, how many more children are going to be affected, please help us stop them. And so, mm-hmm. well, they couldn't put it all on America's Most, most Wanted there at that time. Right. They, they put the strongest case on, which mm-hmm. was, I believe, the 2003 and 2005 cases. And so when they did that and they aired it several times, both on the radio and the TV station, and it went national, Jerry at that point was buying, you know, he was literally going into the Dollar Tree and clearing off the cough syrup and the mouthwash and that's what he was drinking. Meanwhile, the other two people that helped him, Christopher Lunds, helped him get rid of my son's body after the fact. But the other man who uh, took pictures uh, is currently serving time in Florida and assisting the federal marshals now. So I'm not going to mention his name either. But, okay. uh, you know, they arrested one in Florida and they arrested one in Georgia. Um and again, another God incident. By the time they arrested both of those men, they had right. already sent into Jerry Estes, and they murdered him so that he would not rat on them and their involvement. And so uh, they, you know, uh, the man in Florida told him where to find Jerry, confessed to, you know, his involvement in my son's case and into several other cases. And... uh Christopher Luntz denied his involvement in my son's case up until last, uh, the October before his death. And um, and then in another twist of fate again, you know, um, you know, God of my misunderstanding really is good to me. When I get out of the way and let him take care of it and just work on the part I'm supposed to work on, in another mm-hmm. twist of fate, you know, January of this year, um, there was a, a pedophile uh, that was in in the same area as Christopher Luntz was in jail, and Christopher Luntz uh, murdered him, and and so uh, you know um, Christopher Luntz was executed early too because of mm. all that. So you know it, it amazes me when I focus on you know what recovery did teach me, which is you know 
there is a perfect time and place for everything, even my character defects. It's whether I'm using them appropriately or not. And when I get out of the way and let God do his part and me do my footwork part and, and not try to do, you know, the creator's footwork part, that he really does have a good solution. You know, because if you had told me that two people that were involved in my son's case would end up taking out the murder of my son, I'd have said no way. That's too sweet to be true, but that's what happened. Right, right. And he might still be in jail if that uh, Christopher Lunch, right, hadn't uh, killed him. Yeah, he might still he be might alive. Jail. We yeah. might be still, you know, taking care of him. And, you know, so when we buried my son, we didn't even know exactly when he had died. Uh, at least today, I know the exact date. And, you know, I have some closure on that level, but it meant for me... It, for many years, staying in the recovery rooms and not being able to say anything. And so there's another side of this that's mm -hmm. still unresolved, and that is uh, the man who executed the will is currently living in my son's house on my son's property and paying on that fraudulent loan to this day. And so wow. that's under investigation and, uh, you know, something that's still currently going on. And and I don't leave the recovery rooms because, you know, the old-timers I came in with said if I saw a problem that I was to stay and fix it, that I have a responsibility. And part of me paying back is staying and making sure. And so well, you know, this, maybe we could talk about this because uh, thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show. It's really, really a very, very sad story and um, really, really heartbreaking and really frightening uh, when I first read, you know, part of this story, it's, you know, on Facebook, on that special page that was up there about, I think, 13-stepping, right, wasn't it? That was the page that people were starting to talk about, predators in the rooms? Yes. Was it? And, you know, and, um, well, yeah, you know I, I, still, I still fight it. Uh, when I moved to California, you know, um, a year ago, last November, uh -huh. um, you know, um, it's prevalent in Southern California. I have found that they have this motto that I really do not like, and it really just makes me cringe when I hear it, and that is, you know, you can do anything you want to do so long as you stay sober while you're doing it. And it's like, excuse me. Wow. They not, say that in the meetings where you go to. You know, that's not what recovery has taught me. These steps taught me that I have to be responsible for my actions and my inactions. And... Um, so they don't today, say that around here, but that's what I was asking you. They, in the meetings that you've attended in uh, in your area, people are saying that? Yeah, I really have, uh, you know, people, you know, I'll, I'll put it on out there. Um, people in Lake Elsinore, they either love me or hate me, and, and they know uh, those know who they are, you know, and that's because when I got there, I saw some stuff going on that should not be going on in my recovery room. I object to it, and I won't sit in that room and keep my mouth shut. And um, so, you know, it's sad to say, but, the, you know, a lot of the behavior that I'm talking about was going on by people that had 15, 20, 25, 28, and 30 years, and I'm like, no, no, no. No, just because you've not been called on it doesn't mean that you can be doing it in here. You know, um, you can't be taking advantage of others. 
you know, out in the, out in the real world, the rest of the time, if somebody ripped you off in any way, you'd be calling the law. If somebody right. raped your daughter, you'd be calling the law. If right. if somebody stole your car, you'd be calling the law. You know, mm-hmm. if if somebody is doing these things, if somebody's stealing from you, you know, these this is not what recovery is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about changing our behavior, living differently and living by spiritual principles today. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, people think that anonymity means that I don't have any responsibility to tell you that I know that this person is a known criminal that's on the run from the law and wanted in another state for pedophile charges. I'm sorry. That's That's something I should have had a right to know. That's right. And why do you think there is this quieting down, you know, this sort of secret, it, it's almost like, a, you know, they think it's some special secret society uh, that things are different in, not only in the meetings, which is, you know, where there is bad stuff going on, as we see in the news, but why do you think, Keeper, yourself, I have my own opinions, but... Well, you know, what I have found has been the status quo since... Coming to this area, you know, when I came in, the old-timers told me, you're as sick as your secrets. You have no secrets. That that means you have really good recovery, you know. But I have found there's a lot of people um, that they want to know your secrets and then hold them over you and blackmail them, blackmail you with them so that you won't tell their secrets. And, you know, I just I don't understand that, Monica, because what I found was these steps gave me the freedom to say that I did some horrific things in my drinking days. I've even done some things that are not, you know, very uh, very nice even uh, in my recovery, and I've had to make amends for them, and I've had to be accountable for them. Um, you know, I had a, a good example, okay? Um, I didn't have my own license for a long, long time in recovery. And, you know, I was trying to do it the right way, and then I kept making exceptions and driving in emergencies, and so that stalled me getting my license back for a long time. And ironically, I didn't lose it over a DUI. Uh, you know, I didn't lose it over drinking and driving. Right. But, you know, um, <clears throat> these spiritual principles teach us that um, when we don't live by what we're talking about, then we have to pay those consequences. And, you know, I feel this way. If it's something that I would call the law on any other time, then I should be calling the law. If it's something that I would be telling one of my friends, you know, when I came in, the old-timers had this thing where I came in, you know, if you weren't behaving right, a couple of the old-timers, if you were a man, two men would grab you, walk you outside and talk to you. You'd have a private meeting in the parking lot. If you were a lady, it'd be two of the ladies. Right. I don't see that being done anymore. And you were oh. told, you know, that behavior, no, no, it doesn't go on in these rooms. I don't see that being done anymore. I see yeah. more people saying, well, you know, it's none of my business, and, you know, I'm going to work it the way I want. And No, that's not what it's about. No, but because there are, there are people doing that, you know, then you have a lot of people that what, what's said around here in Los Angeles is, like who you hear here and what you hear here, or what it say here. And then they say hear here like it's some like kind of cult chant or whatever, you know. What? You know? And that, okay. let me no. tell you what, in a court of law, if you're sitting in a meeting room and somebody admits to murdering somebody in a meeting, 
the whole what you hear here when you leave here ought to stay here thing goes out because you're still an accessory after the fact and you can still be charged. Thank you. What? You think that Thank you for sharing here, here that. makes the exception? No, that here here means that, you know, if Monica comes and sits down next to me and tells me, you know what, um, you know, my my husband's beating me all the time, da 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 You know, I don't right. have a to go out on the street be telling your business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I'm your friend, I might want to call the law and, or, or call and see about getting you some help or, or sit down and talk to you one-on-one and say, Monica, honey, we got to get you out of this situation. You right, know? right. And here, here means, you know, that I shouldn't be broadcasting it. It shouldn't be beating you home in the car. Please That's don't right. take that out of context. Um, I want to welcome everybody to Blog Talk Radio. I'm Monica. I'm your host. This is called Safe Recovery. Uh, the call-in number is 818-475-9211. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left in the show. Um, if anyone would like to call in um, and ask a question or make a statement, uh, 818-475-9211. Uh, the way you can also reach me is at makeaasafer at gmail.com. That's for the literature uh, that I have been sending to give a report all over the country. Um, there's probably 65 meetings now that are using the literature. I'm not, you know, keeping tabs, but I do know how many people ask me, and then I, I mail out about 20, and they're allowed to just photocopy them and reproduce them any way they see fit. The Spanish community in the Palm Desert area really jumped on it, and they made posters out of it. They translated it, and they unanimously voted in 23 meetings to use the pamphlet. I want to talk about it and your experience. Well, I want to back up. I want to just say this before I ask you this. Um, In uh, Australia, when I first worked on this project, um, a past trustee, a past delegate, um, turned me on to some information, one being that Australia wrote literature, and Australia put it on their major website, okay, unlike New York is addressing any of this. And literally, at the top of the page, it's like, you know, 8 by 11, dealing with predators. It says, the Central Region 2001 Regional Forum took a bold step by holding a special session to discuss the issue of sexual, spiritual, and financial predators at AA meetings. Predators are AA members who take advantage of other members in various ways, such as sexual harassment, sexual attack, pressuring members to join a particular religious group, borrowing money, selling goods for personal gain, offering investment schemes, and theft of group funds. And then it's a whole, you know, like a whole page of talking about how to raise awareness. And even with this, on their website... I have received emails from Australia and have sent, you know, my pamphlet, and they were like, you know, what's going on there and how's it going. And with this kind of stuff, uh, I would say, you know, how can you even still go there? How can, you know, what drives you into a meeting? You go armed with my pamphlet. Do you still have some left? Um, no, you know, I don't have any of your pamphlets left. I've managed to hand them out everywhere I go. Um, my you home group is Paula Monday night. And, um, what happened when you gave somebody a pamphlet? 
Um, actually, they went and, and they held one of these uh, Making AA Safer uh, uh, conference workshops here locally. Wow, that's good. So um, I know it's been put up on a few boards. Um, you know, the reason I go, you know, you, you, you know, I understand there's a purpose in everything. You know, the spiritual principles of AA and what I learned in, in both the AA, the NA, and the Al-Anon rooms is, you know, I try to live by those spiritual principles. And, um, you know, it was through those same principles that I could find compassion for this man, Gerald Estes, as the alcoholic. But that does not mean that I can't make him stand up and, and be accountable for those things that he did. You know, um Oh boy, I I, I can't Today, go there. You know I, what I mean? I, I'm like well, I, I think this is so horrible. Um, I, you know, I would love to say I'm yeah. never going to AA meeting again, but you know, it is the very thing that gave me a life worth living. It is the very thing that taught my own children that there is another way of life. It broke a circle of alcoholism in my own family, and and for that I am immensely grateful. So today I have a responsibility of using this stuff. I still have to pass this on. You know, to keep it, I have to be willing to give it away. And so today I just, you know, I'm kind of a little more centralized. And so, and what that means is, you know, when I see a young person come in the room, I immediately identify that I came in early myself at 27, that I watched my own kids come in. And and, and I try to, uh, as quick as I can, you know, make contact and reach out with them and, and make sure that they get steered away from particular people uh, without ruining anybody's reputation or anything, but, you know, kind of take them under my wing. And, um, you know, because today I can be responsible. Um, today I can sit in that room and and I see things going on, but, but if me going away does not stop it from happening in that room. Me standing... Right. And saying, yeah. no, I'm not going to allow it. That's what stops it. One has to stand up before many will. And so, you that's know. That's right. Now, I think that's, you know, uh, I'm not gone yet. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't right. leave yet. Uh, it doesn't mean that I might stay, you know, very much longer because I'm really upset about this stuff, to be really honest with you. But I felt like I couldn't leave because I saw. I mean, it was just horrible what I was seeing going on in West L.A., and there was no safety measures put in place. And, see, I have a whole list of things that I think would make, from the general service structure in New York to all the people that are making $6 million a year uh, back there, to every delegate for every trustee uh, sent out to every GSR that they have their addresses for and make everybody have a workshop because... You know, uh, it, it is, the truth is that you and I met because we had one workshop. Because 36 A members met, there was a group of us, me being like the spearhead of this, with a group of other women who were furious and a few other men, had a workshop. A rape was exposed by a guy who was 23 years of sobriety who has a sober living place. And then we had another workshop out of that, and from that, those women and people started to feel like they could open their mouths and start to talk about this, right? And they began to talk about it on Facebook. 
And I started a blog, you know, called Stop 13 Stepping, and then there's a blog called Stinkin' Thinkin', and they talk about, you know, all the things they feel it's wrong. But my blog, um, anyway, you were there because that got stirred up enough that people felt supported that it can't all be hush-hush. You know what I mean? But can you imagine if everybody had a sexual harassment in New York training and every delegate had to have a sexual harassment training like every other company in the United States nowadays does, right? And if every general service rep went back with my pamphlet or something like it and said, guys, we've got to raise awareness here, oh, boy, you know, like in the news here, like, was this, two days ago? Reality is, this is the reality. When I came in, it was a rare incident that anyone was court-ordered, a rare incident. Today, it's a rare incident that anybody walks in without a court order. Right. And so that's what we're dealing with. Hello, and it's not going away. Ignoring it's not going away. And the reality is, unless we're willing to continue communicating and unless we're willing to really look at what that, what anonymity truly means in and out of this you know, program and where our responsibility truly is, um, this isn't going away, folks. It's going to get worse. And so we need to unite and say, no, stop it. And, you know, it takes one, one saying no. You know, just mm-hmm. like, you know, everybody, you know, back at home for four years, everybody thought I lost my flipping mind. Why are you continuing with this? You know, because I had the intuition and I couldn't let it go and because I owed it to my son and I owed it to another member of AA in recovery. I owed it to my son to find out exactly what happened. And then when I started finding out uh, how involved it was, you know, the piece I find today is that, you know, yes, I lost my son at 21, but, you know, I had that knowledge the day he was born, that I'd had him 21 years, but only 21 years. Today I see the purpose when I know that it opened up a seven-state pedophile ring, that 25 men were arrested initially over this, and the four years of me, you know, keeping quiet, moving next door, changing my my name, and, and just mm. practicing my spiritual principles, staying in the N.A. rooms and, and keeping my head down, and, and you have no idea how hard it was for me to keep my mouth shut in the AA rooms. Today, mm-hmm. there's no way I'll sit in a room and keep my mouth shut. But then again, if I'm at a bus stop and I see it going on, I'm not keeping my mouth shut either. Right. And do you feel supported? Like now you've moved to Escondido, uh, you, you seem like, you know, because I'm pretty verbal I, too. Finally, and I get like, Monica, I, I have to say, you know, just in the last year and, you know, you know, another God incident, us running into each other online, the way we did on on that blog and then us getting involved in this, um, you know, finally, other than, you know, uh, people that uh, were in my close spiritual family and in my close network from my original home group in Franklin, um, uh, you know, I finally, after nine years, can speak about this and finally have support of other people saying, you're right. And yes, we'll stand up with you. And yes, we'll we'll take the five minutes and listen. Mm. And yes, if we see it go on, we'll say something. And um, and that makes it all worth it. 
Oh, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on uh, and talking. And we're going to talk some more. Um, uh, I really, really appreciate it. We'll get, uh, we have each other's email, but I'll get your address and I can send you more flyers and we'll talk more. Um, thank you so much. I want to read the latest news. This is, I don't know if you've heard this, but this came out in the news April 7th. Um, a couple was sentenced to probation in criminal abuse case. Uh, this is a couple um, in Perry Circuit Court. I'm not sure where that is. A Thursday morning, where a 15-year prison sentence was probated for a period of five years following last month's guilty pleas on three counts, each of first-degree criminal abuse. So it was a couple. Uh, they had they were faced with 17 counts of first-degree rape. This is on four children. Uh, seven counts of first-degree sodomy. 22 counts of incest, three counts of first-degree sexual abuse, and three counts of first-degree criminal abuse. Colette was facing 12 counts each of first-degree rape and incest. They were accused of having sexually abused or raped the children, all of whom were under the age of 12. In 2008 and 9, all of the charges against them, with the exception of three counts, each of the criminal abuse was dismissed in accordance with the plea agreement. How, I don't know how, what kind of lawyer this guy's going to sleep at night made a plea agreement with these people. Now listen to what they're going to do. They are going to go and they will be required to attend two Narcotics Anonymous meetings or Lifeline meetings each week, completing 500 hours of community service with the Perry County Pride Program and have no contact with victims. So who's going to call that meeting in that town of Narcotics Anonymous, and let, let them, them know. know. This is no, and, and this is something that I'd like to address. And you know, I know we're getting close to time. Like two but, minutes. Go ahead. You know, Go ahead. You know, I really, you know, if anybody from GSO is out there listening, or you know, uh, you know, at a higher rank, you know, please, we have to start remembering we are court. They are court ordering criminals to our rooms, folks. Mm -hmm. active criminals to our rooms and we're not getting any notice nobody's sending us an email to let us know and you know I have children that came into these recovery rooms that I thought it was a good thing that they were going to get it young we got now a minute left you have two girls right you have two girls oh, you, know, are... yeah. you know any judges out there listening please mm -hmm. quit court ordering people no criminals like this to our recovery rooms. Make them work for it, damn it. Yeah, I'm, we're going to work on this. There are uh, groups of us all over the country, keepers, that are actually working on the court ordering stuff, and um, I'll keep you in touch. Uh, so I'm going to just say that if anybody wants to reach me at makeasafer at gmail.com, remember that if anyone commits a crime, call the police. AA is not a dating service. Sponsors, don't trust them. You know, they abuse their position of power and authority. We're all just trusted servants. Tell the secretary or the group or some sober friend if you're being harassed. Nobody should be sexually harassed or financially pressured in any way. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thanks, Keeper. Good night. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Okay, everybody, I want to thank you so much for being with me tonight. Please go to stinkin-stinkin.com. There's a whole community there. There's a community on my board, stop13stepnaa.wordpress.com. I'm Monica. I'm known as Massive Attack on the blogs. Make a safer at gmail.com, or you can contact me through this radio show. We will have a variety of uh, all kinds of topics here as we raise awareness on how to make recovery safer. Thanks, and good night.